and welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. The Cold War was not only an era of geopolitical competition between the United States and the Soviet Union and an ideological struggle between capitalism and socialism. The socialist world and Marxism in general were undergoing tectonic shifts in the second half of the 20th century. The split between the two largest socialist states the Soviet Union, and the People's Republic of China in 1960, produced a competition for influence around the world. In the West, the new left, especially popular among students, sought to distance itself from the so-called old left of trade unions, industrial workers, and the traditionally Soviet-aligned communist parties in order to directly or indirectly support the ideologies and aspirations of Maoism, guerrilla struggle, and Marxism sweeping the Third World. This is also an era of decolonization. Former colonies in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East were becoming independent countries. For many of these anti-colonial struggles, Marxism was deeply influential. On the one hand, the revolutionary anti-imperialism promoted by both the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China were political inspirations about how to end colonial rule. Yet Marxism in really existing socialist states also provided a framework of development. Socialism helped foster national consolidation and industrialization while simultaneously connecting new nations to an interconnected world of socialist states which could provide resources and support. However, not all anti-colonial movements or post-colonial regimes in the Cold War were explicitly aligned with the Soviet Union or China or were even Marxist. Some nationalist movements and regimes flirted with Marxism to varying degrees, opted not to become parts of geopolitical blocs, and still maintained ties with the West. The non-aligned movement, embodied most clearly and led by socialist Yugoslavia, featured a range of ideologies and nations that opposed Cold War bipolarity and sought a different path. However, as non-aligned states, or the communist parties within them, interacted with the Soviet Union and China, not only would those states transform, so too would the policies of the major countries of the socialist bloc. On today's episode, we discuss all of this and more with Jeremy Friedman. Jeremy's recent book, Ripe for Revolution, is a close look at the cases of Indonesia, Tanzania, Chile, Angola, and Iran during the Cold War, and how local actors interacted with the USSR Warsaw Pact countries, China, and the West, and what these political and economic interactions would mean for their respective non-aligned countries, the trajectory of really existing socialism, and the world itself. Jeremy Friedman, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start with, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, so I'm actually, strangely enough, um, a professor of, associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Um, I, <laughs> I do not really study business at all. Um, I was a PhD in, in Russian Soviet history at Princeton. Um, I, given my interest, I sort of expanded to China and then to um, global socialism uh, doing my dissertation, which turned into the first book, um, Shadow Cold War, that came out in 2015. 
Um, somehow I, I have ended up at Harvard Business School teaching uh, basically macroeconomics, um, you know, economic policy and uh, geopolitics. I taught a new course on business and geopolitics this semester, um, but I am still continuing my research um, on really the global left. So um, you have a book that just came out uh, called A Ripe for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World. And I got a chance to read it and thought it was really great. And so I, I want you to just give our audience like an outline or a basic summary. What is the book about? So the book is about the international project of developing a model of socialism for the global South, uh, what was then called, usually called the third world during the Cold War. Um, and the idea is that the way socialism has been written about during the Cold War is, first of all, it's written about in a very siloed manner. There's Soviet history, there's development of Soviet socialism, development of Chinese socialism, there's the new left in the West, um, there's various other projects in the developing world which are treated with more or less degrees of seriousness. There's this whole you know, discourse of sort of wag the dog in which third world leaders are using discourses of socialism as a way of manipulating superpowers into delivering more aid and such. Um, and so it's this very kind of siloed history of the left, which is also extremely cynical in that, you know, the Soviets are trying to kind of export the same Stalinist model everywhere, one sort of orthodoxy they're trying to impose, and the you know, developing countries are playing with that orthodoxy in order to extract aid from the USSR and then the United States. Um, and I just think that's, you know, it's a simplistic picture of what's actually happening. Um, so yes, ideology matters, you know, doctrine matters, but at the same time, um, it doesn't necessarily get in the way of international conversation or international discussion. And so I thought, you know, there's there's a global history of the left, you know, the effort to build socialism that's missing and what integrates all these things. Because basically, you know, there's still a global conversation happening. So, you know, communist regimes, socialist parties, you know, radical, you know, third world leaders, um, leftist activists in the West are all really in conversation because they all have certain aims in common and because they're facing certain common problems. Like for example, the de-radicalization of the working class in the West, the rise of you know, ethno-racial religious anti-imperialisms in the global South, um, the you know, increasing you know, failure to um, get a return on investment for state-led industry. And so the, you know, the centrally planned model of, of the economy in crisis. And so all the reason they're facing you know, common problems, which necessitate a common conversation. And so my argument is that socialism in the global South is not about imposing an orthodoxy. It's about an evolution. It's about trial and error. Uh, it's about iteration. Um, and what happens is by the end of it, by the end of the Cold War, the, the sort of the socialist model that's in vogue is very different from where it started because of this process of trial and error. Um, and socialism does not, you know, does not die, does not disappear at the end of the Cold War. I think it makes it makes no more sense to say that you know socialism died because the Soviet Union disappeared. That it makes sense to say you know Christianity died because Jesus didn't come back in whatever year, right? It just it changes and it iterates. And so to understand you know where socialism is in the post Cold War era, you have to understand how it evolved during the Cold War and where it was by the end of the Cold War. Um, and so that's kind of this you know integrated you know global history of socialism that I tried to write. Well, isn't that why? the United States always tries to stop from socialism to take effect because of the experimentation that actually leads to more resilience? Isn't that actually why the precedents are always the most sort of curbed alternatives? So I'm not sure, I, I don't know if it leads to more resilience necessarily, but I think, look, I mean, one of the one of the most interesting places to trace the evolution of socialism, or at least socialist thinking, is the United States. I mean, part of the reason the story is, you know, is relevant is because of the fact that, you know, since the 2008 financial collapse, um, we've seen, you know, a, a growing interest in socialism in the United States. You know, it might not seem like much, but compared to where, you know, it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it's vastly more significant, right? You know, the Bernie Sanders almost winning the nomination, you know, the increasing prominence of Democratic Socialists of America and some of their members, you know, in Congress. Um, I think, you know, and then you add to that, um, the experience of COVID and the pandemic, which massively increased the role of government um, in a short period of time. And there's there's been, you know, that that attempt to expand the role of government, I think, has, you know, hit certainly a speed bump with the inflation, um, which has limited some of those ambitions, but I think only temporarily. Um, but between that and also, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the conflict with China, which is leading to greater industrial policy, really the role of the state in the economy in the United States is being kind of renegotiated right now. Um, 
And so I think, you know, it's it's a slow process, but I, I think, you know, you can look at even the history of American socialism um, and it's, you know, it's not irrelevant and it's not uninteresting. Um, so. So in your book, uh, you know, I just wanted to just touch on, there's like two global tensions that are like in the background. One is this Cold War bipolarity with the socialist world and the Western capitalist world and how they're interacting with the third world. But then inside of that, you also have this tension between China and the Soviet Union. So I guess, can you just outline or in your opinion, how do these two tensions interact with each other in affecting how the actors in the third world are developing ideas, concepts, and movements uh, for socialism domestically? Because to me, it's interesting to see how in some of these instances you outline in your book in Angola, Indonesia, Chile, Iran, and Tanzania, you have these actors who are basically in some, in some cases interacting with all three of these forces and navigating how to how to make sense of a sort of local version of socialism while interacting with these three forces. Right. And the truth is it gets even more complicated because you know there is a Yugoslav model and you know Yugoslavia has its own foreign policy and so does Cuba and so does Vietnam. And so right there there are other players involved more than just the Soviets and the Chinese. I think to answer your question, right, it's a complicated question and it looks a little bit different no matter where you're looking at it from. I think the first place to answer that is from Moscow, which is really sort of caught in the middle, right? In the sense that on the one hand, it's fighting Cold War against the United States. On the other hand, it's sort of fighting a rear guard action to defend its mantle of leadership of the international communist movement, which is the term that's used um, in the face of China. And in certain ways, um, the Chinese threat is actually more significant to the Soviet Union and the United States because you know, the Chinese threat threatens its very legitimacy, right? If, if, if the Chinese manage to take away the mantle of leadership, of you know, international communist revolution, then the Soviets have no source of domestic legitimacy. Um, and so you know, that is you know, really one threat. And so that means that you know, they're sort of, to put it in crude terms, they're, you know, they're being pushed from both the right and the left. And you know, with the United States, they might have an incentive you know, for the sake of peaceful coexistence to try to tamp down conflict. And they're being pushed by the Chinese to promote conflict because otherwise they look like they're sort of revisionist sellouts. Um, so they, this particularly is evident, for example, in Vietnam, where on the one hand, they don't really support the North Vietnamese, um, you know, and the Viet Cong in their war in South Vietnam, and they're worried that it might lead the United States to take drastic actions and to get in the way of arms control and everything else the Soviets want. At the same time, they can't afford not to support the North Vietnamese war effort because then the Chinese will call them basically, you know, sellouts. Um, and so they find themselves in a position in which they're providing 90% of the military aid to North Vietnam at the same time as they have no influence whatsoever in North Vietnamese policy, because the North Vietnamese can always say, look, you know, if you don't, if you don't give us aid, we'll just tell everybody, you know, in, we're in the world that you're counter-revolutionary and we, you know, we support Beijing. Um, and so they have no leverage whatsoever. So they're, they're sort of caught in between in a lot of cases. Um, I think, you know, part of the story of this book is that it, you know, it plays out differently in different scenarios. Um, you know, Indonesia is also a fascinating case. Indonesia is, you know, the third largest communist party in the world. Um, it seems on the verge of taking power for, you know, really for a 15-year period. Um, and the Indonesian Communist Party is also playing this game between the Soviets and the Chinese because, you know, on the one hand, they believe in peaceful coexistence to begin with. But as that begins to look less likely to succeed, they start moving closer and closer to the Chinese model, which emphasizes anti-imperialism and, you know, getting behind and, you know, focusing on international geopolitics rather than domestic economic reform, which doesn't seem like an avenue to power for them. Um, so one thing this does, right, is that it gives a lot of actors, including actors on the left, this kind of room for maneuver in which, you know, just the way like some countries manipulate the U.S. and the Soviets, you can also manipulate the Soviets and the Chinese um, and find some room there, which, you know, especially the Vietnamese are, you know, the North Vietnamese are fantastic at doing. So you talked about in your introduction, siloization, about communists being isolated from other leftists. And um, I guess I talked more about that because that was very interesting. I actually liked uh, that moment. And I think about that today as well. I think it's happening in a different way again. Um, so maybe you can address that. Well, so I think, you know, that exists in sort of for several different reasons in several different ways. Um, and what I'm arguing is that, you know, as historians, um, we should try to overcome the siloization. Because as I said, right, there is 
a global conversation on the left that's happening throughout this period that you know I think we need to try to recover. Um, the silosization itself is sort of there's it's the product both of historical circumstance and of the way I think historians have looked at the left. Um, you know, it, one could argue that it begins actually if you look at you know the very earliest days of the common turn, um, in which you know coming out of the first and second common turn congresses. Um, countries were forced or leftist parties were forced to decide whether or not to you know, declare loyalty to Moscow or not. And that's where you get the division between communist parties and socialist parties, right? That happens 1919, 1920, 1921. And so that's sort of this first major moment of division. And then you know, that plays out, of course, if you think about the 1920s and 1930s and you know, the, the famous conflicts between the German communists and the German socialists, which prevented them from allying against the Nazis in 1932, um, I mean, that's a particularly famous moment of what's called the third period of the Comintern when, you know, they had this harsh policy that the socialists were called social fascists. Um, and so that's one part of the siloization, right, that happens when the communist parties allied to Moscow begin to distinguish themselves, you know, in a very firm manner from socialists. And so there's, you know, and that led to harsh feelings on the left, right, whether you were pro-Moscow or anti-Moscow was an important distinguishing feature of being on the left in the 1930s, especially. Um, and there are many examples of those who were, you know, sort of pro-Moscow at one point in the 1930s and it came disillusioned. Um, you know, people like Arthur Kessler and, you know, George Orwell and others like that. Um, then you have this moment that's really sort of born out of McCarthyism, um, you know, in the United States and kind of anti-communist um, policies across the West in which, you know, to be seen as kind of the loyal opposition, to be seen as an acceptable part of political discourse in the West in the 1950s, you had to disavow, you know, any communist connections, which meant not just disavowing the Soviet Union, but also disavowing, you know, the wartime alliance, um, disavowing you know, the, the communist activities that many people had had in the 1930s, right? The, the CPUSA was very prominent in the 1930s. There were a lot of people who had ties to the U.S. Communist Party in the 1930s who then had to disavow them in the 1950s. Um, this plays out in Western Europe as well. You know, the, the, the Socialist Party in West Germany had to officially sort of renounce Marxism in 1959 in order to be able to play a part in German politics because, you know, they could no longer be tied to a communist system that was seen as, you know, being imposed on Eastern Europe. Um, and so that's kind of a second silosization that's imposed. Um, and that, you know, many people on the left had to declare themselves as anti-communist, you know, in order to remain part of political discourse. And, you know, this remains, I think, you think about the 1960s and the new left, and by that point, Right. There are many heroes of the new left, including people like, you know, Mao Zedong for some, you know, Che Guevara for others. Um, there are very few images of protesters, you know, in the 1960s, you know, hippies holding up portraits of Brezhnev. Right. I mean, the, the Soviet Union is, is not sort of a source of, you know, popular adulation then. Um, and so this kind of like splinterization of the left um, continues. And then this is then reified, I think, in the historiography. So then we tell the story as historians about the history of the left and we tell the story of the new left in the West or the Socialist Party in Germany, or something else. And we don't tell the story of an integrated history, even though these connections always remain. Um, they're both historical, they're contemporary, um, and they're circumstantial. Um, but we reify these stories. So you know, people on the left don't want to be identified with the Soviet Union. We tell their story as if they're not identified with the Soviet Union, and there's no connection. Um, so it's this kind of you know, sort of triple silosization, which I think we need. You know, As historians, our job is to recover the conversations that have been sort of, you know, hidden by these politics. Yeah, one thing I actually really liked about your book was that, you know, you're, you've, you center this idea of like how malleable some of the policy was, yet it still was within a ideological vision. Um, and so interestingly, like you paint Soviet foreign policy in these instances as in some cases being really hardcore about the need for economic development, and then in other cases, sort of um, being concerned about the ideological orientation of the, of the, of the local regimes. Um, so that was one thing I thought was really interesting. And then a second thing that I thought was, I wanted to bring up was how oftentimes today, I guess, more or less in popular discourse, sometimes Soviet foreign policy in the Cold War is painted as like a very rigid thing, something that, you know, approaches the world from this strict rigidity and wants to implement its vision of the world without any concern for local conditions. And I thought it was really interesting how, you know, you focused on the fact that Soviet policy was constantly changing 
learning from mistakes. For example, the fact that after the coup of Allende, you know, you center this idea that the they move away from a reliance on bourgeois democracy as being a vehicle to socialist transformation. You know, the revolution must know how to defend itself. And then um, I think a second part of this is this whole debate about Soviet policies on religion and how there was actually a boisterous and sort of in interesting debate happening in these Soviet academic journals about whether or not Islam is actually a revolutionary uh, tool or not, or if it's going to just be a tool of a kind of bourgeois reaction um, in these states. And of course, you know, that's, center, that's a centerpiece of how the Soviet government relates to the Iranian revolution, because, you know, some people are writing in these journals in Moscow that, you know, we should actually embrace this as an anti-imperialist thing and that the and Islam has a very progressive role to play and others saying, no, 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 it's going to actually go in this other more negative direction. So this malleability of the Soviet, I think, position um, and it being able to learn from itself and learn from the, the, the situation, I thought was really, really um, um, a sort of a great point that I think I want to underscore and, and see if you have anything to say about. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really built on. So I um, I focus a lot on the role of ideology and policy in this book. And in order to do that and to explain the phenomenon you're talking about, I, I redefine, you know, or how we understand ideology. So I think if you look at there's there's always been a lot of discourse about the role of ideology in foreign policy in the communist world. And it sort of comes down to, you know, are they ideological or are they pragmatic, right? Do they believe in the stuff or do they not? Do they apply it or do they not? And the way that's often been done is, you know, you make a list of essentially policy predictions. You know, if you believed in this ideology, you would do X, Y, and Z. Do they in fact do X, Y, and Z? If you say yes, then they believe in it. If you say no, then they don't. And I think that's incorrect. That's really a misunderstanding of the, the role ideology plays in policy. Ideology does not <clears throat> determine policy outcomes that you must adopt. Um, <clears throat> so I say in the book, that what ideology really is, is ideology is a method, a simple, uh, in, you know, a method for simplifying our understanding of reality, because reality itself is way too complicated. There's, there's too much, you know, stimuli to sort of process all of it at one time. So it's a systematically simplified method for understanding reality, which, which facilitates judgment and action. So what it allows you to do is look at a situation, identify these are the salient points. Right. This is what matters here. This is what doesn't matter here. I can ignore that part. You know, this is what's good. This is what's bad. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And that allows me then, you know, facilitate judgment and action. It doesn't it doesn't dictate the action, but it allows you to understand a situation. And so, you know, what the Soviets are doing, right, is they're not abandoning the ideology. Right. The ideology, for example, will still tell you, OK, Nasser in Egypt. Is Nasser a progressive actor or is Nasser a reactionary actor? Um, now. You know, you look into his class background, you analyze other things, you decide, right, okay, we understand this person as progressive. Now, that does not dictate how much you need to support it, right? It does not dictate that we have to send forces to, you know, to Egypt or whatever to defend it against Israel, or, you know, we have to whatever. Um, but it gives you a frame of understanding of the world. And then, you know, your ideas of which tactics might use to advance your interests might change over time. Um, but the point is, it's not right. It's not solely pragmatic because your entire understanding of the world in which you're operating is through this ideological prism. Um, so that's, I think, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that, you know, it's not an either or when it comes to pragmatism or ideology. Right? Ideology is the way you understand the world. It forms your understanding of the world, and then, you know, within that, you make strategic and tactical decisions about what best advances your interests. Um, and I also have this strange fascination with reading Soviet academic journals, which I think, you know, a lot of people who do, you know, what we call diplomatic history, right, like to go right to the foreign policy archives. And, you know, um, and fortunately in Russia, at least before COVID, there was actually a lot of material available, um, which is surprising to a lot of people, especially those who work in China where less is available. Um, but I think, you know, you get a lot from not just reading, you know, government documents themselves, but also the academic articles, because the way the system works, right, is that, a lot of the thinking is being done in academic institutes, which are actually pretty crucial to policymaking process. Um, and these you know, academic thinkers are people who also hold positions in, you know, not just the international department of the communist party, but also, you know, so-called NGOs. I always find the term NGOs applied to the USSR a little bit funny, but, you know, NGOs like the Soviet Peace Committee, the Soviet Solidarity Committee, right? Things like that. Um, they're also, right, they're being chaired by 
professor of, you know, so, someone at the African Institute or, you know, the Near Eastern Institute or the Institute of the Far East. Um, and so this is really where a lot of the thinking behind the policy process is getting done. Um, and, you know, it's, it's yes, it's it's heavily ideological and, you know, there's a lot of Marxist terminology in there, but it's also quite useful. How are they determining, say, if Nasser is progressive? Like, what are some of these categories? Like, how do they weight? Like, what are maybe something you remember? I know not everyone's using the same methodology, but, you know, there is a Marxist methodology to that's very, like, you know, broad. But I'm curious, too, like, how are some of these Soviet... Um, theorists, how are they determining the progressive nature? Well, I mean, so the first thing I'll do is always look into their class background, right? So, you know, look into Nasser's class background, Sukarno's class background, where else you're looking at. So th that's sort of step one. Um, <clears throat> look into the nature of the coalition, right? Which, which political forces, which people in society are supporting them. Um, look into their, you know, what they say about socialism, look into their policies, look into their foreign policy, right? How do they view imperialism? How do they view the United States? Um, and you take all of these things, and then you also, you know, once you've had this information, let's say on Nasser, right? Who, who is he personally? Who's supporting him? Who's his coalition? What kind of policy is he supporting? <clears throat> then you also look for analogies. Um, so let's say, you know, you have a military government in Peru, right, under General Velasco in 1969, a military coup that wants to be sort of left-leaning, you know, and progressive and socialist. And you say, okay, well, we have other military regimes that have been similar before, like Nasser's in Egypt or, you know, Ney Wins in Burma um, that have claimed to be left-leaning. What happened to these regimes? What, you know, what forces ultimately sway them one way or another, right? Can we draw analogies between what we see in Peru and what we saw in Egypt and Burma? Um, and so there's this analysis that sort of builds on it over time, which is the kind of thing that, you know, um, Brian talked about with what happened with Allende in Chile. So as I say in the book, right, the story of the support, the encouraging of, you know, using the tools of bourgeois democracy to build kind of a broad-based coalition that would allow the communists to ultimately, you know, um, take over a more decisive role in the Chilean government was built on, you know, what they saw as their failure to support democracy in Indonesia, which led to a military coup and, you know, the murder of, you know, half a million communists, suspected communists. Um, and so, they're learning from that mistake, you know, that didn't work. And then the disaster happened in Chile and they go to the Sudan and Iran and say, well, you know, you don't want to ally with kind of the middle-class bourgeois democratic parties, you know, the parties of, you know, Bazar Ghan and others, because you might end up like they could be tools of the CIA and they might ally with the old military and the old regime and therefore, you know, overthrow you. So they are learning over time um, and this analysis changes, but, you know, there are these basic Marxist tools that you build and then you look for analogies and you look for lessons of the past. This is only kind of interesting in the sense that now that people are, you know, war in Ukraine and Russia, there's been constant debate, right? And leftists have been attacking other leftists for not supporting Ukraine. Um, and so they have been attempting to create why to support Ukraine and support NATO, right? Over Russia, how this is a progressive character. And others arguing actually Russia is a progressive um, uh, sort of country in this regard of a larger NATO uh, framework. So it's interesting because everyone's using these different um, criteria to make their cases. And so that's why I asked. Right, and if you look at Putin's speech, right, Putin is very clearly sort of invoking all the tropes of anti-imperialism, right? Um, you know, and this is, he's someone who was trained in the 1970s under Brezhnev, right? This is this is the discourse he grew up with, right? This is the this is probably the fundamental understanding of his place in the world that you know hasn't really changed in 50 years. Um, so it's not surprising that in certain ways, you know, he's re-employing Brezhnevite, you know, anti-imperialist rhetoric, which has been you know updated for the last, you know, for the 2020s, but um still has a, a venerable history. Do you go crazy when people say like Putin is trying to bring back the Soviet Union? Well, I mean, look, I think it depends who's saying it, right? I mean, in, you know, in the United States, I've spent, you know, several years in Russia. I spent a lot of time learning Russian, right? And this is, you know, a large part of my life. Um, this is not something that most people do, including people in government and such. And so um, it's not, you know, there are a lot of people have obviously a more simplistic understanding of what happens in Russia and 
you know, that's that's an easy thing to say. The Soviet Union used to be here. Um, it looks like he's trying to reinvade his neighbors. It it, it looks similar. And so um, if you know, if you if you don't look too deeply at it, um, like I mean, there there are certainly many issues in which I have a simplistic understanding too around the world in which you know in, in which I'm not an expert. So I, I I find that you know you have to worry about it when it comes into affecting policy. But at the same time, like most people think in relatively simplistic categories if they're not experts in the field. I think it was like Joe Biden who said that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't just I, anybody. <laughs> No, but I mean, look, Joe Biden, I think, is not, you know, I he believes himself to be an expert in foreign policy because of decades in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But um, I think Joe Biden is someone who has a vision of himself as leader of the free world in a very old fashioned Cold War sense. You know, he imagines himself as if he's, you know, John F. Kennedy in 1961. And I think that world has long since passed. Um, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. I mean, reading your book right now is like very fascinating because, you know, in many ways, you're kind of like talking about this Cold War world that was created and um, is now very often being summoned in kind of all rhetoric because of the resurgence in some way of or breakdown, you could say, of the post Cold War. Uh, order in some way, you know? And so these kinds of tropes of the Cold War are being brought back up. Um, actually, that, that that is another, that reminded me of a question. I, I One question I also had was, you know, um, in each one of these third cases of the third world that are brought up in your book, you know, um, it, it, it's also like, there there's some kind of tension that exists in the local actors' minds between what socialism can mean as some kind of internationalist ideology that connects it to the world versus national development and like national consolidation and like national concerns. And so geopolitics, of course, overshadows the, the interaction between these two aspects. And so the question would be like, you know, in the third world socialist experiments that you studied, is socialism a tool of national development and consolidation, or is it a tool of like an alternative globalization? Well, so again, I would I would object to the language of tool and the language of instrumentality because I think that implies a kind of, you know epistemological simplicity of thinking for these people that I think doesn't really exist. So it's like to say that something, this is a tool of nationalism means that, you know, somewhere Ho Chi Minh or Fidel Castro or Salvador Allende or Sukarno is thinking to themselves, I want to make a strong country, but I don't know how to do it. Maybe socialism will work. Um, and, you know, I think that dismisses the fact that like they begin with understanding of the world or now analysis of the world. And that, in many cases, leads them to be sympathetic to socialism, to see things in a certain way, right? If you if you believe that you know the world is composed of antagonistic classes, right, and that what matters first and foremost is who controls the means of production, right? That's sort of a fundamental belief about how the world works. That is antecedent, right, to your commitments to you know either national consolidation or even the building of socialism. Um, and so, you know, if this is your understanding of how the world works, right, first and foremost, let's say you're in a post-colonial country, you need to have an understanding of colonialism. You need to have an understanding of, you know, what is happening in your country, what, what you want to happen in your country, who are these people who've been ruling it for hundreds of years, what have they been getting out of it, why have they been doing it, you know, what do you want to, so like this, once you answer these questions, you have an idea of how the world works, right? You, if you understand colonialism, you have to say, well, okay, why do countries want to rule other countries on the other side of the world? Right. Start with, you know, you have to answer that question first. And you probably come out with some answer about how, you know, they extract economic benefit from it. Okay, well, how do they do that? Right. Well, there are people in the country who cooperate with them who help them extract benefit. Right. And now you have you're developing a class analysis, right, of imperialism. And so that is antecedent to then what you want to do with that. Right. So that's my point is that, you know, ideology is how you understand the world first. And so it's not, it's not just a tool. Um, so I think, you know, once you have this analysis, you say, well, this is the world that I want to see. This is the world, you know, that and, and national consolidation and socialism then become almost identical, right? Because 
to be, you know, a, an independent, dignified, powerful, rich nation can only happen through, you know, breaking the bonds of, you know, economic relations that have been oppressive to us in the past, right? They're sort of inseparable. Um, and so it's not really a question of, you know, using one as a tool to achieve the other. I think that's what was going through a lot of people's minds here. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what you point out, of course, is very important, right? That they're not just, you know, sort of mindlessly applying a socialist model that they learned, but they're, you know, they're tailoring it towards national specificities. And that goes against, you know, a model that, you know, some people had during the Cold War, which is that, you know, third world leaders go to Moscow, they get brainwashed, they come back and they try to implement what they've been told, or, you know, they became radicalized in their student days in Paris when they, you know, fell in with the French Communist Party or something like that. And, you know, no, they've, They've always maintained their independence of thought. They've always kept an idea, you know, in their minds of what's happening in their home country and what they want to do. Um, and this is just, you know, helping them bolster their analysis. Um, but it's not, right, it's not a brainwashing project um, by any means. Um, and that's also, you know, as I say in the introduction, that's part of the reason why I didn't choose, you know, Cuba or Vietnam, because I, I wanted to deal with countries that, you know, did not sort of explicitly kind of adopt the Soviet model of, you know, a communist party in power, a party state and such, that these are, these are countries that are trying to negotiate their relationship to socialism, you know, in the context of Soviet power and Soviet aid, but without adopting, you know, the full-scale model. You know, I thought that, uh, I, I, to me, the most interesting example in the book was about Iran um, for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that, you know, you kind of, make the point both through the role of the two-day party and I think just the situation that the Iranian revolution unfolded in was that you had this kind of like anti-Marxist, Islamic, anti-imperialism that was only able to sort of be midwifed into the world through Marxism. Um, and that was like an interesting sort of contradiction that was at the center of your, I think, telling of this tale of the Iranian revolution. Um, you know, and to me, I was like interested in that as like, what, how could, you know, these basically Marxist revolutionaries play a role that would end up sort of undermining their own ability to act and, and impose their own program, basically? Well, so first I would say that like, it's important to qualify that not all the Islamists in Iran in 1979 were anti-Marxist, right? I mean, Khomeini is anti-Marxist for sure. Um, but a lot of the younger activists, including the first president of the Islamic Republic, right, Abu Hassan Bani Sadr, is not anti-Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it even goes for some of the people later on who sort of attempted to, you know, implement what we might call, you know, neoliberal reforms in Iran, like, you know, Rafsanjani in the 1990s was actually quite leftist at the time of the revolution. So. I wouldn't necessarily call them anti-Marxist. I mean, they're obviously anti-Marxist in the sense that they don't buy, you know, materialism and atheism as part of their, their ideology. But um, the interesting thing that really happens is that what, what happens with Islamism is that it attempts to sort of supersede socialism. So I think we have this idea, especially, you know, as Americans, and I, you know, we've, I think we've already kind of um, abused Americans' understanding of the world a lot in this uh, interview in terms of, you know, simplicity. But one of the things that I think, you know, Americans look at Iran and see it as kind of a medieval theocracy, right? This is somehow a retreat to the Middle Ages, you know, look at the way they treat women and such. And it's not, it's not a retreat to the Middle Ages. It's not a medieval theocracy. It's something much stranger, right? It's this, it's an anti-imperialist modernizing theocracy, um, right? It's not, I mean, Saudi Arabia is not exactly theocracy, but it's not Saudi Arabia. Um, what happens is, you know, they sort of, Islamists, you know, look at socialism and say, you know, what socialism wants to achieve are good things, right? They want social egalitarianism. They want Iran to be, you know, unified and powerful and regain its place in the world, right? But they fail to do this. Um, and, you know, you fail to do this, you know, you can sort of diagnose what's wrong with socialism or what is missing from socialism. How is it, why has it failed in the USSR and such? And so they come along and say, we have a way of achieving the kinds of things that socialism promised to achieve but fail to do so, Islamism can achieve them, right? We can achieve economic egalitarianism in a way that socialism could not because ultimately we have God on our side and, you know, people are accountable to God in a way that, you know, socialism sort of devolves into corruption. Um, we can therefore bring economic development. We can reestablish Iran's place in the world. Um, 
And so what the Islamists claim to do is we're going to achieve what socialism promised to achieve but failed to achieve. We're going to be the ones to do that. Um, and so in that sense, it's sort of this supersessionism, right? That they don't disavow the goals of socialism. They just say that, you know, we're better at it. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think, and, and why do the communists go along with this? Well, because, again, it's an ideological understanding of the world. And so they simply do not believe that it's possible for, you know, religious authorities to run a modern country, right? It's how could they possibly have expertise? Who would be their constituency, right? It's not possible. You know, history doesn't go backwards. And so the idea is that, you know, you help the Islamists get into power, that prevents, you know, the bourgeois liberals from being, in, you know, entrenched in power because they can really hold power because then, you know, you have the old regime, you have the Americans. Instead, you bring the Mullahs into power, they'll, they'll run the economy into the ground, it'll collapse in three months, six months, a year. And then once that happens, then we're the only ones left, right? Then the left takes power. Um, and of course, 43 years later, right, theocracy is still there. They miscalculated. Um, but that was the thinking that, you know, this... I mean, that's, and that's part of, you know, an example of where ideology does limit, right, the malleability or the understanding, because, you know, it makes them malleable enough to say we can ally with, with the Islamists, but it doesn't allow them to see that the Islamists can actually run the country. That's actually, I mean, Iran is like, I always say it's like a case study against dissolving yourself with like fundamentalist, like Christians or any kind of like religious groups in general. Um, especially for the left, because there's a tendency now, it's interesting, because I think um, some level, I think Brian was getting to this, is that, say, in Georgia, we have um, a section of the left here who are much more sort of use socialism as building the nation, you know, where capitalism and free market is unable to, let's build it on a little bit more, you know, under like socialist sort of principles in the sense of much more authority over the state, you know, picking more winners, you know, putting a certain like emphasis on certain industries, right? These kinds of things where it doesn't, any country kind of can do that without having any sort of socialist background or socialism. That's how I see it. Because you have to have a lot more for me, for me to believe that socialism you would have to have um, workers at the center of a lot of things, you know, um, a lot more content that would be empowering and not just a better way of say like, um, maybe increase the productivity forces, but like bring the workers to heal, you know, like, because often like the South Korean model, a lot of people like as a state building, but what they've, you know, what the, the transition was, you know, and, it, and we see all the films now, the horror films of like what it did to the society of having that kind of intense sort of capitalism that was super top down where workers were like, told just sacrifice themselves now for a future later, right? Um, and so like, that's not appealing as is more of a humanitarian kind of like perspective. Um, and so like that has been tension here where there's like some leftists were just culturally leftists, you know, like for pro-gay rights and women. And then there's leftists were like, oh, we don't care about any of that. Let's just try to build a state model. Incredibly different. Like they have, they're, they're talking absolutely past each other, absolutely have nothing in common, to be honest. And so like, I don't know, like with your like five countries that I think it's five that you have um, spent time on, maybe you can give us, uh, besides I'll say Iran, like another example that you can sort of discuss more um, about, about what you've written about it and what have you found? Well, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, what you say, of course, is something that's not just, you know, unique to Georgia. I mean, you, you find some of the things in the United States, right? There's still very much a debate on the far left of the United States in terms of, you know, how much should economics be central? Um, and, you know, this is, the, I mean, this has been um, kind of, you know, vulgarized into discourse about, you know, Bernie bros and um, the tension between Bernie bros and other people on the left in the United States, but this is very much a similar conversation, right? Is this about, you know, as Bill Clinton said, right? Is it the economy stupid or are there, you know, narratives of oppression, you know, think about Black Lives Matter, Me Too and such that should take precedence, um, over, let's say, you know, just economic discourse, especially because, you know, the argument is that you can't, you know, disentangle racial and gender oppression from, from economic oppression. So I think, so that's that's really a global divide that's happening on the left. Um, and in certain cases, you know, in certain sense, like what you're talking about ties very much into what I'm saying 
um, happens in terms of the iterations, the way socialism iterates by the end of the Cold War. Um, so this really is centered, I mean, you look at the Angola chapter that I wrote, which is chapter four. Um, this is really central to that story because you know what happens in Angola is you know, the MPLA takes over, the Marx-Leninist party takes over, and they're still in power to this day. They have never given up power in Angola. Um, and the Soviets say, look, you know, our experience with building state-led industry um, has not really worked very well in Africa. Our experience with trying to collectivize agriculture has not worked well in Africa. So what we need to do, right, keep the Marxists in power politically, but, you know, maintain private economic relations, right? And make sure that, you know, major foreign investments, so like for example, the oil industry, which is the chief source of income for Angola, um, those remain um, you know, in, in state hands, but controlled by the people who also control the politics. And so you know, the only way to trust, you know, to, 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 you know, to trust an economy in which private market relations remain and foreign investment remains is to make sure that all of it is filtered through the political elite. And so the political elite and the economic elite are the same. The argument being that, well, these are the people we can trust politically. They're the ones who liberated the country. They're the true nationalists, right? As long as power is, economic power is in their hands, right? Then it's being used for the goal of building the country. Um, and so the story you're talking about, how this turns into basically state control of the economy being justified on nationalist anti-imperialist grounds, right? That the only way for us to sort of reassert ourselves against a global economy in which, you know, forces of capitalism and, you know, international flows of capital will basically make you a kind of, you know, third world dependency unless, you know, you put the economy to control the state, right? That leads, you know, that makes anti-imperialism a, a kind of, you know, justification for um, state control of the economy, but that means consolidating state control of the economy in the hands of a few people. It doesn't necessarily mean that it trickles down. There's no, you know, there's no redistribution necessarily. It's not about working class power. It's just the people in charge of the state using anti-imperialism as an excuse to take over the economy. Um, and then, you know, they don't have to trickle that down because we want to reinvest it. We want to build our own national, you know, national economy. So that's, I mean, I think that's one of the things that comes out of this um, is precisely that, you know, you switch kind of the valence between politics and economics. So, you know, early Marxism says, you know, you want industry to grow first. You want a working class to grow first and that will shift the politics. And then by the end of it, it turns into politics running the economics. So first we have a Marxist, you know, it's a matter of who's going to control the state. And then, you know, they will over time, right, control the economy so that it moves in a Marxist direction. But the politics determines the economics. Um, and I think you still see that, as you say, you know, for example, who's left in Georgia, they want to use, right, the story of anti-imperialism to bolster state control of the economy without it, you know, coming from organically from below from the working class. Uh, yeah, to some degree, sure. I think it's also that the working class is, especially post-Soviet world, it's a little bit, it's even worse to talk about that because it's decimated, right? Working class is non-existent. It's just, it's it acts, exists as sociological category, but as a consciousness, it pretty much doesn't exist. So this idea, actually Georgia challenged my thinking about the sort of much more bottom up approach because there is no bottom <laughs> to demand um, the top. It's all geopolitical. It's really just EU like um, directives. They just come US and EU and they tell us what to do and you try to say no and then see what happens. <laughs> like absolutely top down um, neoliberal sort of directives. And there's absolutely almost no resistance to it. There's no one to resist because no one has any practice or consciousness or experience they have built to speak from. Um, and so it's it's really, um, it's, it's like either one top, it seems like a lot of like top down, top down, one kind or another, you know, not sort of a, there's no feasibility or it doesn't look like it, I would say, of and a real bottom up sort of movement to demand some of these things. Right. And this is what I was talking about when I said sort of, you know, the global left is facing, you know, similar problems, which, you know, create this kind of global conversation. This is precisely the issue that, you know, the left is facing in the West in the 1960s, because, you know, in the 1930s, you had, you know, militant unions and you had, you know, strikes. And it seemed like, right, the working class might get behind the Communist Party. And by the 1960s, working class conditions are, for the most part, pretty good, especially in the United States. People are making decent incomes. 
Um, and so who's protesting, right? It's it's students, it's racial minorities, but it's not the working class. You have this you know, infamous moment in 1970 in New York when um, <clears throat> construction workers attack student protesters. It's a very famous moment. And so I write about this too. Like um, I've written a, a case on, on stagflation and you know, neoliberalism in the United States. And this is precisely the problem that was already evident in the West in the 1960s, right? Is that you don't have the working class, the actual workers, right, behind the left. And so, you know, it's the left is, is students, the left is whoever else you can get, but it's it's not the working class anymore. And this division that happens on the left, or especially in the United States between, you know, civil rights movement, anti-war protesters and unions allows the Democratic Party under Jimmy Carter to sort of move in a neoliberal direction, because now, you know, the unions, the working classes are seen as basically enemies of progress um, to a certain degree, rather than, you know, allies for it. Um, and so this is something that, you know, as you say, in Georgia, it's happening now. Um, in the West, the left has been dealing with this really since the 1950s and 1960s. You know, what, one of the themes on our uh, the podcast, Reimagining Soviet Georgia, is we, we engage with these questions about Soviet history, post-Soviet politics, and sort of always like, as Sopo already alluded to, with like an eye towards what's happening here in the South Caucus. And one of the things I thought was pretty interesting in, in your book was that when you talk about this debate that's happening around the Soviet understanding of religion, you allude to the fact that like um, they're channeling the debates that Lenin was engaged in about nationality policy in the beginning of the Soviet project and how at the beginning of the Soviet project, as we all know, there were concessions made to nationalists and to different uh, local nationalisms. And in being in Georgia, of course, the Georgian affair was like hugely important in the early construction of the Soviet uh, federal system and the role of, 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 of nationhood in the Soviet project. Um, Georgia fits in in the center, is a centerpiece. And so it was really interesting how the Soviet thinkers in these journals that you like to read, you know, were, were discussing um, religion as a inevitable progressive force of the global South that we have to interact with because it is a historical inevitability, very similar to how the Lenin, Lenin's position of the nation, right? That nationality is a progressive force that is, you know, inevitable and that we have to interact with and that we can actually in some way engage with to, to further the socialist project. Um, and so I guess that to me was really uh, kind of illuminating how this like, you know, very different historical moment, but that in essence of sort of a Soviet approach to, to political understanding will inform how they're gonna be interacting with third world uh, resurgence of Islamism. Uh, in the 70s. Well, what's interesting, right, is that it's the same intellectual move, basically, right? What Lenin does is he distinguishes between, you know, oppressed and oppressor nations, right? And so the nationalism of oppressor nations, right, Russian, great Russian nationalism, German nationalism, British, you know, English nationalism, French nationalism, right, that's, that's reactionary, that's oppressive. But the nationalism of oppressed nations, right, maybe Georgian nationalism, or, you know, Indian nationalism, or, you know, um, you know, Vietnamese nationalism, right? That's progressive, right? At least in the short run. It's not necessarily progressive in the long run, but, you know, it's it's progressive in the sense that it will help break down, you know, the empires, which will lead to the crisis of capitalism, which will lead to social revolution, which will ultimately lead to, you know, sort of um, a socialist world. Um, and so they make that same move, right? You distinguish between nationalism of oppressed and oppressor nations. You distinguish between, you know, oppressor religions and oppressed religions. Right. So the idea is that, well, Christianity has been tied to these, you know, great powers, right? Christianity has been used as an excuse for Western imperialism. So Christianity is an oppressor religion. Uh, and certainly, right, they see, you know, the Vatican as, you know, an oppressive force. Um, but oppressor religions, right, are the religions of the colonized, the religions that, that can mobilize the colonized to, you know, rebel against their colonizers, to rebel against the imperialists. And if Islam is being mobilized in an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist force, then Islam is, you know, is progressive, at least in that time, right? Same with Buddhism, right? Particularly the famous scenes of Buddhist monks, right, burning themselves in the streets of Saigon in the early 1960s leads to Soviets say that Buddhism can also be, right, a, a you know, a progressive force, right? It's, it's a religion of the oppressed. And so it's the same intellectual move dividing religion between oppressed, you know, oppressor and oppressive, oppressed religions, the same as, you know, oppressor and oppressor nations when it comes to nationalism. 
I like what you said earlier about how, you know, it's like, it's none of these ideas, whether it was even the Soviet uh, perspective, the Chinese perspective, or the, especially these local actors that you discuss, sort of just crudely viewed these things as like instruments, but they were, but these ideas were, I like to always say things like, you know, it existed in an ecosystem of various forces, whether, you know, local conditions, geopolitical context, the bigger context of the Cold War. And, but I guess one theme that also is recurring in your book that is like always present is geopolitics. And I feel like geopolitics are such a like, you know, this is a, so centerpiece of the conversation on global left today and in the mainstream media. So sometimes, you know, I feel like we can get into these reductive conversations about geopolitics, but the way that geopolitics function in the, this story that you outline is one of, it's very intimately tied to how all of the actors are navigating their own interests at the same time that they're trying to navigate um, a, a world in which they're functioning, like geopolitics are not just some idea that they're pushing for, but always like in relation to um, other factors. And I feel like sometimes we tend to take geopolitics today and just, you know, um, divorce them from any other considerations, economic development, social uh, policy. And so I guess like to somebody who you were explaining your, your, your research to, like what role or how do you place geopolitics into this Cold War uh, story of 20th century socialism? Well, what I would say is that geopolitics is one of the key uniting factors for all the actors in this story. So that, you know, they have different understandings of what socialism is and how you build socialism. You know, do you have state-owned industry? Do you start with agriculture? Do you collectivize agriculture, right? These are sort of policy questions they differ on. But a fundamental area that, you know, that unites all of them is the idea that the struggle is global, right? That we're, you, you, you're not gonna be able to build socialism in Tanzania or build socialism in Indonesia by itself in a world in which, you know, let's say capitalism remains dominant, right? Um, or that, you know, and that conditions in Indonesia are so unique that they don't have any bearing on what happens in, you know, in Tanzania or in Chile, right? There's, there's, there's a common understanding among all these actors, right, that what they're dealing with is global phenomena, that capitalism is global, that class struggle is global, right? Um, and so that ultimately, right, their, you know, liberation um, can only be brought about, right, if there is a global victory of socialism, right? How you get there is another question, how long it will take is another question, um, but right, none of them ultimately believe that you know you can have a socialist Tanzania in a world in which um, you know Western capitalism remains dominant indefinitely, um, and so th that means that there's always some tie between what's happening in your country and what's happening in terms of you know the United States, the Soviet Union, China, because that's the big arena in which you know geopolitics is sort of being decided. Um, and, you know, those things always have to be connected. So it means even, you know, Tanzania, even, you know, Angola, whatever else, has some interest in relation between the U.S., the USSR, and China, right? That's really, I think, you know, a common understanding that all of them have that underlies it is that the, the struggle is global. Their situation is tied to global struggle, um, and it can't simply be solved, you know, in local terms. Everything's called like anti-imperialism these days, so it's like hard to figure out what what that means anymore. But you did say like sort of bracing narratives of so racial, ethnic, or national identity and their associated hierarchies of victimhood could prove politically profitable. It'd also be risky, not least for the Soviets themselves, who are perpetually in danger of being presented as a white imperialist power. That's precisely what the Chinese were using to sort of you know challenge the Soviets was the claim that um, you know. The Soviets are, of course, betraying the revolution, right? They're, I mean, when the Soviets, for example, are worried about peaceful coexistence and so they refuse to support, you know, the Algerian FLN, um, they don't arm them, they don't recognize them when the Chinese do. They're more reluctant to, they, they pull the missiles out of Cuba in 62. They're more reluctant to support rebels in the Congo. Um, you know, all these different things, right? They, the, the Chinese see them as being insufficiently supportive of the Arabs against Israel in 67, right? So there are many instances in which the Chinese accuse the Soviets of being insufficiently anti-imperialist. And the argument is, well, what do you expect, right? 
this is after all, this is just, you know, they're, they're a European country. These are white people. These are, you know, the Russian empire was one of the great powers. Um, you know, this is, that's who the, that's who the Soviets are, right? Why should they take the side of, you know, peoples in the global South against their former imperialist neighbors, right? All they really want, what peaceful consensus means, the Soviets want a condominium with the West, right? They don't, they don't want to overturn the global system. They just want to be included in the ruling class, right? They want it to be not just, you know, the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, but the United States, Western Europe, Japan, and the Soviet Union. Um, that's what they want. Um, and so this is the critique, right? So the Soviets, you know, and so it's dangerous for the Soviets. And the Soviets are going to stand on principle and say, look, you know, oppression is about class struggle. It's not about race, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about whatever. Then, then they have a doctrinal position to challenge the Chinese. But when they begin saying, look, oppression can also be about race. It can also be about ethnicity. It can also be about that. Well, then guess what? You know, the Chinese say, yes, and you're one of the white oppressors. So it can be used against them, right? That's that's the danger the Soviets are worried about. It is also interesting in these, these cases, like because they're so specific, Tanzania and elsewhere, where it's like sometimes they're simultaneously um, summoning some of this language um, that categorizes the Soviet and even Chinese models as being somehow also imperialist, but then the same time in practice, like recognizing that they're clearly less bad than the West. You know, what was this, um, what was this uh, sentence that you quoted in the chapter on Tanzania, where the president who comes after, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Nairi? Nerere, the guy who comes after, and he's the one who signs the deals to the IMF and the World Bank, who says, like, you know, I could not, not he's like the, the one before me, Nair, could not drink the poison. What was well, so actually, you had that drink was, a like, cup of poison. Nice that thing. was actually Khomeini's quote. Um, right. Khomeini, sorry, but he, but this is a, use this in a reference well, yeah. when you're alluding to the fact that comparison in, in Tanzania, where, you know, they, 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 they might, they might, they might, for domestic purposes, be like, you know, these are external forces that we don't want to have influence. But at the end of the day, they understand that the West exists in a more sort of antagonistic position, or at least when it comes time to sort of put, you know, put off the uh, inevitability of, uh, of engaging with the uh, Western um, uh, funding, they they know that this is a, a horrible path to go down. Yeah, no, I mean, right. So Nureri sort of, you know, sort of constitutionally can't make that compromise. That's why I was I was comparing his refusal to compromise with Khomeini saying, you know, I can't, I can't end the war with Iraq because I can't sign a peace deal. I can't drink that cup of poison. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I read it a couple of days ago, so I couldn't remember the exact place. But I remember this like nice. Uh, couldn't remember. I couldn't drink the poison myself. This is like quite good. But yeah, it was, it was that was an interesting thing about Tanzania because I knew less about Tanzania before I read your book, where it was like, like after he left office in what eighty three was it. 85. Yeah, he leaves all. And then it was like immediately when he comes after that, then there's a new political situation that allows for the regime in Tanzania to start in, engaging with some of these um, structural, is it, do they actually receive structural adjustment with these yes. IMF loans? Or is it more that no. they, yeah, so they start engaging with structural adjustment plans, the, the IMF and the World Bank that like would have been politically impossible uh, under Nairi's. Um, uh, they do. Membership. And of course, I mean, again, keep in mind the idea that you know, the ruling party in Tanzania has never changed to this day. So just like Angola, um, it tend to change this name to CCM in 1977, but the CCM is still the only, only party that's ever held power in Tanzania um, in 61 years of, of independence. Um, and they basically just change presidents every 10 years. Um, the same thing what's happened is that, you know, there was a period where they do structural adjustment in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, Benjamin Makapa, who's the president, the third president, the one after Ali Hassan Wini is 85 to 95, Makapa is 95, 2005, and he's sort of seen as, you know, the epitome of neoliberalism, like the height of neoliberalism. And then, you know, the financial collapse happens and Tanzania has sort of moved back to the left in a certain sense. So A, they move closer to China and away from the United States, which is, you know, part of the way they do this, because now you have a source of funding and a source of investment that's not tied to Western conditionality. Um, but, you know, they've also sort of, um, Magufuli, who was the president who, who recently died, tried to, you know, rediscover Birari and, um, you know, um, use Nereri as, as, a, as a campaign tool. Um, so there, Tanzania has, is at least rhetorically, not necessarily in practice, but at least rhetorically kind of gone back to the Nereri era in certain ways. Since you're a business administration professor, right? So I know lots of kids will be like, so 
socialism has failed everywhere. Centrally planned economies don't work. It's probably something you hear all the time when you talk about that. How do you respond with your case studies and your knowledge? Well, I would say, first of all, you know, the whole point of this book, if you know, is that centrally planned economy is not the only version of socialism that exists. Um, right. It's I, I think the whole point is that socialism changes, socialism iterates over time. And the failure of centrally planned economy was a lesson that you know socialist economists had learned by the 1970s and 1980s, right? This is partly, you know, it was motivating the Kasigan reforms of 65. It was motivating goulash communism in Hungary. It was motivating, you know, people like you know Otto Schick in, in um, and, you know, uh, um, I'm forgetting his name, the guy who wrote The Hungarian Economist, um, Janusz Kornai um, in the 1980s, right, who all of whom contributed, Julian Gortz has written his book, right, contributed to the Chinese reform of the 1970s and 1980s. So they were aware of the failures of the centrally planned economy in the 1970s and 1980s. And, you know, socialism is about social control of the means of production, which can mean state ownership of the means of production, but doesn't have to, right? I mean, the whole idea is they reinterpret socialism to say, we can include market forces, but if the state can shape the way market forces operate, right, then you can essentially force the private sector to answer to, answer to social imperatives. And that's also a form of social control of the means of production. So the whole point is that socialism doesn't disappear, it just changes. Um, and it doesn't disappear because it's it's answering, you know, to continuing inequality domestically, continuing inequality like internationally. And so, the imperatives that led to its creation remain, and therefore it doesn't disappear. It just it just changes over time. It adapts.